Our scripture reading today is Psalm 82. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Let us go to the word and prayer and ask for his blessing during this time. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now to hear your holy word. And would you give us the boldness and confidence to hear your word? Because we know your word changes us. Father, sometimes we are set in our ways, but you don't want us to be the same. You want us to change. And it's through your word that we come to know who you are, how we have sinned, and how we must become more and more like your son. So I pray this prayer for all of us. Be with me as I speak your word. Be with your people as their hearts and ears are receptive to whatever comes out of my mouth. And may we give you together all the blessings and honor to your name. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Justice. What is it? People have been claiming that they know what justice is, or people have said there is an injustice in this land, and people have saying that's not justice, but if you ask them what justice is, they can't really define it. And they can't really define it because it's complex. It's very difficult to get a strong grasp of justice. I didn't even know how to define it myself, so I did what any person would do, I went to the dictionary. How does the dictionary define justice? It is just behavior or treatment. So that is very unhelpful because they use the word in the definition. So then you have to look up just. And it's a behavior according to what is morally right and fair, and there lies the problem. What is morally right and fair? People have differing opinions on what should be considered just or what should be considered right. And other people, seeing what they think is right, say, no, that is morally wrong. How do we assess justice? Michael Sandel, a Harvard professor, has a class on justice, and he has a great book on justice, and it's called Justice, What is the Right Thing to Do? And I thought this book would surely answer the question, but he just says, this is a really good question. And he shows how complex justice is. Who gets to make what's right and wrong? Is it the one who is most powerful? Is there a natural law that everyone just has to adhere to? Does might equal right, or is it a vote? If you vote, do you simply go with the majority? What do we do? How do we determine justice? And I'm talking about justice today because in Psalm 82, 82, God is talking about justice. 
God addresses what justice is in his church. And I want to make that little caveat. God is talking about what justice is in his church. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, what's the difference? Isn't justice in God's church justice everywhere? And this is where it gets a little tricky. I don't think that's the case. There are things where it's just in the church and it may not be just outside of the church. Because if you think about what dictates justice, it's usually the constitution or the covenant you have made with the other party. For example, in the United States of America, if someone puts up a monarchy and say this person is king, we will cry out, that's an injustice. Yet at the same time, you go to the United Kingdom and you try to take away their monarchy, their queen or king, they will cry out, that's an injustice. Who's right? Well, both of them are. Because in their laws, they have defined that as just. And as the people of God and the church, who defines what is just? God himself. And how do we find out what justice is? It's in the Bible. So I will talk about justice of how God perceives it. And some of you may start thinking like, that can't apply to the United States. And I'm not talking about the United States. I won't be talking about how to vote or how the government should think about justice. I'm just merely talking about how the church should think about justice. And I think it's a good topic because there are points of intersection with our land, but there are points of departure and it's wisdom that dictates which way we should go. But for us Christians, it's important to understand what justice is, is in the church and then we can start from there. Psalm 82 is all about justice and it is how God wants justice carried out in his church. So we immediately go to verse one and we see that God takes his place among the divine council and he is in the midst of gods ready to judge. And for many of us, that should be a little bit of alarming. He's like, who is he sitting with? Different gods? Can't be. There's only one God. And yes, you're right. There's only one God. This is just another word for human beings. Now, some of you may say, I don't know. That sounds like God's is God's. Well, luckily, I have Jesus on my side. He's usually a good source. If you look at John chapter 10, Jesus actually cites this verse. He talks about Psalm 82. And he talks about it, talking about how there has been a title, Son of God, before. Now, why would this be of interest to Jesus? Because at this time, the Pharisees are accusing Jesus of taking the name Son of God. He says, you are blaspheming. Never in the history of Israel has man been called the Son of God. And then Jesus says, have you read Psalm 82? Jesus' knowledge of the Bible is astounding. He looks at Psalm 82 and he says, what does it say there? What does he call regular people? He calls them the sons of God. He says you are the sons of God. So Jesus right here is acknowledging that it is man that this psalmist is referring to. And then who is this person or who are these people that the psalmist is talking about? And Jesus puts it clearly. It is those who have received the word of God. John chapter 10, verse 35. 
If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? So quickly, all this to say, the people who have received the word of God are the sons of God. And who is this? It's none other than Israel. He is judging Israel at this moment. Many times God has called Israel his firstborn son. And so here Jesus and God is now coming to judge Israel, to judge God, uh, to judge the nation, and to see how they have fared. And what is his assessment? What is God's assessment of Israel? They have failed horribly as a nation. And why have they failed? They have failed because they have judged unjustly. They are not upholding justice. Remember, if you're with us during Joshua, God was, quote unquote, obsessed with justice. He wanted justice to be a defining name, a defining theme in the nation of Israel. So this is really condemning when he says, you have failed at the task I have given you. Israel, my firstborn son, you have failed to show justice. And how is it they have failed to judge, show justice? Well, they have showed partiality. They have showed favor to the wicked. Fair. Fair enough, that's unjust by any measure of anything. You can't show favor to the wicked. But you have to understand who the wicked are. Who are the wicked? Now, if I were to ask you, some of you may start thinking, oh, it's those thieves. It's those people who break the law all the time. It's those adulterers. It's those, those people who scheme money out from people and ruin their lives. Actually, plainly put, the wicked are the rich, those who are wealthy. Now, people would say, well, where do you get that from? If you read the Psalms and Proverbs, the rich are always equated with the wicked. And if you don't believe that interpretation, all you have to go to is James, the book of James, chapter 2, where he picks up on this theme and talks about partiality. He says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And he goes to talk about how people favored the rich and they showed contempt for the poor. And then James goes on to say this in verse 6 but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Yes, it is the rich that are wicked. Now that should make all of us feel uncomfortable living in New York City. Because we think about money all the time and we're one of the richest nations, so how do we comprehend this? How do we think about all this? Well, I just want to say it's not a sin to be rich. If you're rich, praise God. That's a blessing from God. Really, it is. But when does it become a sin to be rich? Under God's economy, under God's rule, it is a sin to become rich if there are poor people. 
Let me say that again. It is only a sin to be rich if there are poor people. The fact that there is a poor class in Israel is abhorrent to God. Because God explicitly said when he made the nation of Israel that there will be no poor amongst you. And if people become poor, you better do everything in your power to alleviate the poor. Leviticus 25 gives specific instructions that if your brother or sister becomes poor, you need to give them a job, you better house them, you better do everything that you need to do so that no one in Israel is poor. Yet here God has come and judged and he sees a whole new class of people, the poor and the rich. To him, this is abhorrent. This cannot be. My people cannot be divided like this. And if you've ever seen any family, you would understand how strict God is with this. Because Israel was family. These were brothers and sisters come from the same tribe. These were his children. Yet how could there be poor amongst these people? Have you ever seen a rich family with a poor child? Never. No matter how much they mess up, no matter how bad they do, their parents will ensure that their child is not homeless and in poverty because they love them, not under their watch. We would say it's a travesty if we met a multi-millionaire and their children were in abject poverty. We would say, what are you doing? Why don't you help your children? That would be just. And God is saying the same thing that needs to happen within his church. So what does he say? This is how you pursue justice. Verses 3 and 4. You have, un, you have judged unjustly. You have shown partiality to the wicked. Let me show you how to make things right. First, you must restore. It says give justice to the weak and to the fatherless to those who are unable to help themselves, restore them, give them back their right, their human dignity. This is what you must do. We could even replace the word justice with partiality. We could say, show partiality to the poor. Show partiality to the orphan. Show partiality to the weak and needy. Now, some of you who are astute in the US Constitution, you would say, that's not justice. Justice is blind. And you think of that picture of Lady Justice holding up the scales and saying that justice is blind and that we will judge each person equally. And that's great. But that's the US. In the economy of the church and of God, God is the symbol of justice and he ain't blind. He's actually the opposite. He's all seeing and he's very astute of what's going on. He wants us to show partiality so that the people who are weak, the powerless, may be restored. You need to restore them to their dignity within the church, within their community. What else must you do? You must rescue them. You need to rescue them. They must not rescue themselves. That is God's view on the poor. 
The poor are not poor because they choose to be poor. Here God is explicit. The poor are poor because the rich has decided to keep them poor. You must release the hand of the wicked. You must do what is right. And this makes all of us feel uncomfortable, makes me feel uncomfortable living in the U.S. for so long. Surely the poor need to help themselves in some manner. Maybe they just pray to God, but here the commandment is clear. Within the context of God's family, the poor will not help themselves. You, the one who is able, the one who is powerful, will help them. And we see this beautifully done in Acts 6. Men who are filled with the Holy Spirit, they're preaching about God. Remember, this is the new gift of the Holy Spirit. They're preaching, and all of a sudden, while they're distributing bread to the poor, they overlook the Hellenist widows. Now, Luke makes sure that he puts their ethnicity there. He wanted to say it's just not widows, a class of people. He's saying the Hellenist, meaning all the Jewish widows were taken care of. And so they are holy men, and they see this problem, and what do they do? Do they go up to the Hellenist women and say, hey, look, you need to speak up. We're really busy right now, but you need to be in the front of the line and make sure you're right here front and center so you get your bread. That's not what they do. They get together and they say, we need to change our system. We need to change how we're operating. And so they created a whole new class of officers. It's the diaconate. In God's new church, there is an office that is dedicated to the weak and to the needy and to the poor in the church. He's saying the same commandment to us. Make sure that no person who resides in your church is ever needy, weak, or powerless. That is what the office is created for. Do not neglect them. You need to understand this is why I have come. Israel at this point during Psalm 82 has forgotten that. And it's condemning to them. He is saying, you have forgotten the basic knowledge of who God is. Israel. You have received my word. How could you forget that this is what I commanded you? And the law is explicit. What is the law all about? Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. That is justice to God, loving the other, not loving yourself, not making sure you have your own needs met. Its main principle is that you must love the other, those who are in need. So who can do such a thing? Israel keeps trying and trying, but they're unable to do it. And the psalmist understands that. The psalmist gets it. No one on earth can do what God is asking them to do. No prince, no ruler, no matter how smart you are, will be able to do it. Psalm 146 says this, put not your trust in princes, in the Son of Man, in whom there is no salvation. When his death departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. No ruler will be able to do such a thing. No ruler will be able to talk to the rich and convince them that there should be no poor. It is impossible. 
because the ruler himself or herself will become corrupt, anybody placed in that situation will cower down. And what is at stake? What if the rulers can't do it? God has made it clear as you made it clear that you will no longer be my own. You will no longer be my nation. You will perish like the rest of the earth. So the stakes are high. Who can lead this nation into such, into such justice? The psalmist understands in verse 8 that the only hope for true justice can come from God alone. When the psalmist prays, he does not praise God, please send someone. He says, God, arise. You judge this earth. Only you can carry out this task. And so God has heard the prayer of this psalmist, and he sent his son, Jesus Christ, who is God, the son of God, to enact justice in his kingdom. And God put his money where his mouth is, because who is God? He is the most powerful. He is the most rich. He has everything in his grasp. Everything is his. He is almighty. He is powerful. There are no one who can call themselves second to him. He is second to none. Yet what does he do for us? He shares his wealth with us. He sends down his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. The poor, the weak, the ones who are needy, the fatherless. God sends his son, Jesus Christ, so that that we may thrive once again that in the economy of God, we will be uplifted and restored. And he understands that we need to be rescued, that we simply cannot rescue ourselves, but that a Savior must come and take his people out of the depths of hell. And he does so. And that is why we are sitting here today, because we have a God of justice who is great and shows grace and mercy and sends his son Jesus so that we might not perish in hell. It is the story of grace. It is the story of amazing love. It is why we're here today to give glory to God, the God of justice and to give praise to our Savior Jesus for what he has done for us. So what must we do in light of all this? What has God called the church to do? Now, for some of you, as you're hearing this, you might be thinking, oh no, Jeff has become a communist. And I don't know why that graded. That's just a thought that came into my mind. I said, okay, people are going to think that, and I just want to express it out here. I'm not communist, nor am I for capitalism. That is the way the world has decided to dictate themselves. Let me tell you what's wrong with communism. All they see is the physical world. They just see that if you address the physical need, then you'll be taken care of. That's not true in God's economy. That's one part of the equation. There are those who are rich material. Yes, they need to help the poor. That was what God has called us to do. 
rich people in the church, they need to ensure that there are no poor people in the church. But God has blessed us in many more ways. There are those who have God has gifted us with great spiritual gifts. And you are not to use those spiritual gifts just to promote yourself. You are there, and you have been given that great wealth to share with the spiritually poor. And usually it's the material rich who are spiritually poor. God has always made it so that we need to depend upon each other. So forget capitalism, forget communism. We are in a realm where the spiritual and the material are both important, and we need to take care of one another. This is what we need to do in the church. As a pastor, I have a lot of Christian pastor friends on Twitter and Facebook. And oftentimes, they are calling for justice amongst the government, which is fair, which is fine. But I think what the church needs to concern herself with is justice within the church. The church is not yet just. Yes, Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior, but we have a very long, long way to go. Are there poor people in our church? Yes. That means we have not yet fulfilled what we need to do. Now, some may argue, say, but don't we have to care for poor outside of us? Of course. That's just a human thing. You should take care of people who are needy because that's a human thing. That's not necessarily a Christian thing. But first, as Christian, our primary responsibility is to one another. It's family. It's as if a parent, their kids are starving and they are well off and they begin helping other children, making sure that they're fed, that they're clothed. People would say, what are you doing? First, take care of your children, then go help the others. And that is what God has called us to do. This is the church I love. This is how I want it to operate. Make sure that there is no poor amongst you. Make sure you help the needy because I am a just God, and that is what I have called us to do. So what is the practical thing that I would like for you guys to take away today? Is that we must help one another. We are far from it. Pray for the leadership that we would be thinking about justice within the church. Pray for yourselves, for your eyes to be open so that you could see how Jesus has gifted you and how you can help those who are materially poor or spiritually poor. Think about ways about how we can help one another, not just this church, but the church abroad, the national church, the global church. Make sure that there is no starving church in the globe. Surely, if this is the case, the world will look upon the church and say, who are they? People have gone into their as poor beggars, but they have come out, people, refreshed and renewed. They have come out knowing that they have a savior, that they have a certain power that they have never seen before. If the church just did what it was called to do, then the world would say, we want to worship that God. My fear is that the church is too consumed with the politics of the world. That's fine. That's in your right as a citizen of the United States to be engaged in it. I'm not going to stop you. But what I am asking you is that you spend as much energy engaged in the justice of the church. And then together, 
Together we can understand what we are building towards because we do have a good leader. We have a God who believes in what he preaches. And we see that when he sent down his son to die for us and to become our king. Our prayers should be Amos 5:24. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream so that all may give glory to our God and say amen. Amen? amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before your holy throne of grace. We come to repent of our sins, starting with myself. Father, the power of money is oftentimes too great. Oftentimes we believe that if we don't have money that we are going to flounder, we're going to fail, that we're going to be taken by this world. But you have said, you are my children. I will never let harm befall upon you. Let us truly believe in that. Let us put our hope in the everlasting God who is powerful enough to save. Father, our lives, as we look back, we want to look back and see from heaven that justice truly rolled down from heaven and that you were glorified in each and every one of us. We thank you, God. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.